everybody and welcome to the who's who of SAU. This is a podcast that introduces faculty and staff from St. Ambrose University in ways listeners may not know, whether that be a hobby, what they do in their personal life, or stuff they've done in their past. I'm your host Ryan Sandness and today I am joined by theology professor Matthew Coomber. Uh, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, yeah. looking forward to this. Just if you'd want to go into your relation with St. Ambrose, how long you've been here, you know, what you teach, what you do here. Sure. Well, I'm a biblical scholar, and I've been here at St. Ambrose. This is my 10th year. And uh, let's see, I teach courses on various areas of biblical studies, um, theology as well. I'm a biblical theologian. And uh, I teach intro courses like Intro to Bible, Just Theology, and upper-level classes like uh, Bible in uh, Modern Politics, uh, Bible in the Arts, and I teach a course on the prophets, too. Um, I'm trying to remember the name right now. It's a rather new class, but something along the lines of mysticism in action. Okay. So, I guess... I interviewed Tad last week, and he's a very, like, niche professor, I'd, I'd like to call it, sure. where it's just like he teaches very specific classes with environmental ethics, and I know you're along those lines in theology, I'd like to say, but sort of just how did you get into theology, or how did you, you know, sort of discover theology and know you wanted to teach it? Right. Well, that came later. So I... When I went to college, I was studying uh, theater and music. So I went to theater and music. Uh, I had an inkling of idea of, of maybe wanting to become an opera singer. Uh, I did uh, eight years of classical vocal training. And uh, I really loved it, but I realized I didn't have the fire in my belly you need to go all the way with that. Right. And uh, so I got into set design and really enjoyed that. And I thought of maybe going on to grad school to... Uh, to do um, uh, uh, theater history. But then uh, I was coerced into taking a theology class. Uh, my college, like at St. Ambrose, there was a requirement. So I went into it and I, you know, I'd grown up in, in church and uh, I'd, I'd taught Sunday school and, and the like, um, but I just really fell in love with it. And I realized that there was a possibility of getting paid to think. And thinking is something I've always enjoyed doing, yeah. uh, exploring big thoughts and stuff like that. So I took another theology class and a couple of philosophy. And, but I'll, I'll try to make this not too long. <laughs> <laughs> I ended up uh, getting very much into Asian philosophy and religion. Yeah. And to make a long story short, while I was an undergrad, I converted to Buddhism. And I practiced Buddhism for five years. I went on to do a master's program in Buddhist studies and the ancient language of Sanskrit because I was going to do what I'm doing now, but in Asian religions. Hmm. Uh, but uh, over time, I started realizing that while I love Buddhism and, and, and I still meditate regularly, I realized that more than moving towards Buddhism, I was running away from aspects within Christianity that had upset me. And um, through a process of prayer and meditation, I ended up reconverting to Christianity. And it wasn't long after that I started feeling the calling to the priesthood. And with that, I became an Episcopal priest, uh, which is my denomination as Episcopalian, and uh, went on for a PhD because 
I just, I fell in love with languages. Yeah. And in biblical studies, you get to study all sorts of languages and geek out on them. <laughs> and I also have a big passion for economic justice. And um, I realized how many anti-imperial texts there are in the Bible. And so that really piqued my interest. And I started right in that direction. So professionally, uh, I'm a biblical scholar who focuses on economic anthropology and issues of empire in the ancient world and how the issues that were going on back then do and do not connect to imperial ambitions in the modern world and specifically resistance to them. Okay. And <laughs> it's, it's weird it's to because, go on. <laughs> yeah, I interviewed Carl and Stella. And, oh, nice. And they're uh, Lovely people. practicing, I know, if I get this, Vaishnavists or right. within I think that's right. Hinduism. And, yes. you know, you brought up Eastern religion, and it's sort of how did you sort of discover that? Because it seems like the for the people who are the big thinkers and the people who are kind of like the hipsters or whatever, it's <laughs> like they they discover Buddhism as like the the cool religion almost right. in, in air quotes. Yeah. So like how did you know growing up necessarily in you know Christianity or loving theology? How did you sort of you know like Buddhism or? for you to be a Buddhist for five years. The danger of books. Um, <laughs> I, I think it started out, before I got into books on, on Buddhism, in my undergrad at Concordia College in Moorhead, Minnesota, Lutheran College up there, I took a course on Asian philosophy and religion. And it really, it really jived with me. And uh, it got me interested in um, Hinduism and Buddhism in particular. Um, also Confucianism and Taoism from further east. But with that, you know, I started asking my, my professor, what, what else should I be reading in this area? And so um, my professor slung me a few, a few titles, and I ended up reading the Tibetan Book of the Dead uh, when I was 21 years old. And the Tibetan Book of the Dead, or maybe 20 years old, the Tibetan Book of the Dead was, was a really formative one for me. It's, um, in, in Tibetan Buddhism, when, when, when someone dies, uh, after they die, the, the priests will read from this book to them to try, try to guide them through um, what's called the bardo, the in-between, before their reincarnation into a next birth. And the success of that depends on many things, including the karma that that person has accumulated over previous lives. But um, it's this really neat and trippy book. <laughs> I mean, and I, I say that with, with profound respect. Um, that kind of takes you through this afterlife scenario before you're reborn. And, and that I was so interested in. And at the same time, I was starting to practice meditation. And there was just, there was something about it that at that time in my life really felt like home and, uh, and attracted me to it. And um, gosh, that's an excellent question. I, I, I can't point at any one particular thing, but it kind of a confluence of many different yeah. things that kind of brought me in that direction. And, and so I, I, as an undergrad, I traveled and, and spent a semester in India. And, uh, and that, that had profound impacts uh, as well. But throughout the whole thing, uh, even when I had converted to Buddhism, I still carried my Christianity very much with me. And during that period, when I would have people that I would hear dissing Christianity, I, I, would, I would interrupt them right away and talk about the amazing 
nature of Jesus Christ, at that time for me, Jesus, but, and, and the teachings of Jesus and, and all of those sorts of things. So it's, it's not like uh, it was some sort of ugly divorce or something like that. It was kind right. of a smoothing in over there, and then I, I guess I smoothed my way on back. Right. Yeah. So sort of how did you get back towards Christianity to where you wanted to teach it at a collegiate level? You know, it right. sounded like you were really interested in, you know, this Eastern religion. And then how did you, you know, work your way back, like you said? Well, it, it started when I met the Dalai Lama. He came to our university. He's the, um, uh, the, the, the spiritual leader of, of Vajrayana Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism. And um, there was a student in my class who was Jewish, and he was considering converting to Buddhism and asked if he should. And, and uh, the Dalai Lama, um, to, to make a long story short, basically said that, look, you, you were raised Jewish. You know the Jewish language. You know the customs. You know the holidays. You know all this stuff. If you become Buddhist, you're going to have to start at square one. If you can make Judaism work for you, he said, stay Jewish. If that absolutely cannot work for some reason, then consider Buddhism. And so that was really the spark that started moving me back towards Christian Christianity. But I knew that I wanted to to really study this stuff on a on a on a higher academic level. I wanted to find ways to make these ancient texts speak to our time. Well, no, not not make ways because I'm not doing this, uh, but to, but to discover ways that I could <laughs> connect these things yeah. within my own mind to what's happening today and, and draw wisdom from them more effectively, and um, and I've always loved teaching. I've always enjoyed that, and so and, and my dad um, is a retired English professor, and so I grew up around academia and and a real um, love for teaching and education. And so uh, I, I guess I just kind of slipped into it in right. some ways. Yeah. Oh, well, slipped into it with a heck of a lot of work. Right. <laughs> and I guess, you know, through doing research to try to find guests for this podcast, mm. um, it says you had your PhD in Sheffield, like yes. universities in Sheffield. Mm-hmm. So how does that, like, how did that work? <laughs> you know? Right. So my mom's Canadian. And I'm a dual citizen with Canada. She's from Saskatchewan. And uh, I was living in Japan, teaching English over there, when I realized, uh, or when I accepted the call I was feeling to the priesthood. And so I came back after teaching English in Japan for a year and was looking at seminaries. And being a Canadian citizen, uh, I had more seminaries open to me, the the ones in Canada as well, and actually the entire Commonwealth, uh, the British Commonwealth. But I was looking at a few in the States, um, but uh, there was uh, Trinity College at the University of Toronto, and Toronto's an amazing city. It's like the New York of Canada, or they would say New York's the Toronto of America. Right. But um, uh, it had a really great program. Uh, I would be able to, it was a consortium of universities, so I'd get to study at Catholic universities, at Presbyterian universities, take classes all across the spectrum, and be exposed to many great world-class uh, researchers. Uh, because even when I started seminary, I, I knew I was going on to become an academic priest, or I, I, that was the hope. And uh, during that time, uh, there was a, a wonderful scholar of the Hebrew prophets at the University of Toronto, uh, uh, Professor Shepard. And I was planning on going on through a PhD there, uh, but tragically, he died of a heart attack, very sudden. Uh, he wasn't that old. 
And uh, so it took everyone by surprise. And um, so I started looking at other universities. I wanted a university where I would be able to relate the Bible to contemporary situations. And so um, I was looking at various ones uh, in the United States and Canada. But the one that was really known for that uh, within the field of biblical studies is the University of Sheffield in Sheffield, England. So I applied to a couple of universities in England, and my wife and I liked the idea of living in England for a while. Yeah. And, um, and I got into a couple over there, but Sheffield was the one that would have... Um, that, that I knew would really facilitate my itch for relating Bible to contemporary situations. So uh, I, I did my dissertation uh, named after a Led Zeppelin song. The song remains the same. Nice. And uh, I related um, the effects of imperial uh, expansion on farmers in the Iron Age, which comes through in many places in the Bible, in, in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, uh, to the effects that... Um, that um, uh, economic imperialism have today on farming communities. And so the book um, that came out of it, uh, that I published out of it, is called Rereading the Profits Through Corporate Globalization. And Sheffield's the sort of place where you can do that sort of research. Because right. it's like a working class city, if I, it if is, I remember. It is, it like, is, that's right. I'm a big soccer fan, and I think uh, I, I think my first interaction with you was, was about... Uh, me being a Liverpool fan and you being That's a Sheffield right. Wednesday fan. The Wednesday and, till I die. Yeah, so <laughs> I guess that whole working class vibe from it, you right. you, you were able to see that. And it kind of goes along with the next question I had yeah. of just how, what is it like living abroad? You know, being a citizen that's not from the place that you're living at, not being of that nationality or citizenship there, you know, what's it like? <laughs> For me, it's magical. I mean... Uh, don't get me wrong, that's not the same thing about the States. I love living in the States, and that's where my wife and I decided to settle. Um, but yeah, I've, I've lived in Germany, I've lived in England, I've lived in Japan, um, Canada. Um, home is always home, right? I grew right. up in the Midwest, in Fargo-Moorhead, uh, and, and the Midwest is very home for me. But living in other places, um, there's a couple of really neat things about it. One is that when you're in a different area, there's just so much to explore. I mean, that's one of the great things about being from the States is that in our own borders, we have so much incredible topography, culture, so many different things to explore right here. But I'd done that. And so living in Japan, I could hop on a train uh, and, and go to some other area and see something that would just blow my mind. That, that's, that's the thing I love are those blow your mind moments where, where you see something that's just so incredibly different. India, oh my goodness, that did that for me minute by minute. But being in, being in England, um, exploring Wales, Scotland, uh, um, seeing all sorts of uh, Roman history, uh, Tudor history, all sorts of different levels of history there. And then once you're over, well, what used to be the European Union, well, but once you're over in um, England, it's a wonderful springboard to mainland Europe as well. Like on Ryanair or EasyJet, um, sometimes the ticket's only the penny plus taxes. So you might pay the equivalent in the U.S. of $30 and you can fly to Berlin really? or Paris. Of course, you're going to be flying at like 2 a.m. or some yeah. horribly inconvenient time. But if you're a grad student, it doesn't matter. That's fine. Sleep on the on the chairs and catch your flight when it comes up. Um, so that's really neat thing. The other neat thing about living abroad, and this is something that I never expected to be a part of it, my sister, uh, my older sister, who's, uh, who's traveled extensively as well, once said this to me, and it, 
and it, it really hit me because of the truth of it, that when you live in another country, even in, like I lived in southern rural Japan, and I was the only uh, Westerner in quite an area, or there might have been, a, there were a couple of us, but in, in a huge area. Um, eventually, it just becomes the place you fold your socks on Sunday night. Yeah. Like it becomes normal to you. It becomes your new normal. And sure, like in Japan, I'd walk out the door and suddenly I was illiterate. But uh, but everything just kind of became normal to me. And one and you don't realize it when it happens. But then eventually you realize, oh, wait, I'm going about my daily life doing things and this is normal. And wait a minute, I just had a conversation in Japanese and that didn't seem yeah. odd. And it's those sorts of things that are really thrilling. And you also, for me at least... It also helped me to realize the things that I love about my own country. Living in England, um, one thing that the British would often point out to me is how um, us Yanks would, uh, we just were up for anything. Like, um, it, we, we don't care if something hasn't been done before. Um, hey, you know, there's talk about going to the moon. We could strap you on a lawn chair on a rocket and shoot you up there. Yeah, you know. Hold my drink. <laughs> you know, I'll, right. I'm up for it. And, right. and when I when I've traveled and come back, I I do see that optimism here, which I which I greatly value, and and, and that optimism transfers also into hopefully continually reshaping our country and changing it. Like um, the fact that people have been protesting about George Floyd's death, that in itself is a sign of optimism. If you don't believe there's a chance of change. Why do anything? But uh, we Americans, we, we, we have a way of, um, of hitting our, our heads against a wall until it becomes a door. Yeah. And, and I really, I learned that too living overseas. Okay. And I could go on about the things I love about yeah. Japanese culture and English culture. And, right, right. And all those things as well. But those are some things I learned that I loved about my own country. And I guess I have to ask, like, yeah. you being, you know, you're from the Midwest, so it mm -hmm. is very much home. So was that sort of an aspect when you found St. Ambrose? Yes. You know, being from just the far reaches of the world and then you just, you know, where you're from and where you, you know, identify from, you know, was that a big, you know, factor in you coming to St. Ambrose? Absolutely. So when, well, yeah, yeah, when when uh, my wife and I were looking at job openings and, and, and going through that whole uh, process, um, Ambrose really excited me on one level because it was in the Midwest and we both wanted to, to end up in the Midwest. Um, my wife, Sarah, she's from Colorado, but she went to college in the Midwest and, and came really to love it here. And um, the other thing was uh, when I read about the mission and vision of the university, uh, before I came here, I, I mean, I, I took my, my academic advisor in, in my master's program at Toronto uh, was a Jesuit priest. Um, and I took classes at Catholic University, but I hadn't had much exposure to Catholicism. And when uh, I was looking at the advert, I thought, oh, Catholic, okay, I better read in what does this mean and, and would I fit there? And, um, and I was so thrilled with what I saw. And not only that, but talking with Professor Keel, who uh, was my initial interview point uh, when I was in the process, and what he said about the ethos of St. Ambrose and its commitment to being involved in community and commitment to justice, uh, I, I had a very strong suspicion I'd feel very comfortable here. And 10 years later, yeah. I, I love it. Yeah. yeah. So I guess you mentioned... Um, you know, that American exceptionalism with, and you mentioned George Floyd. Well, not American exceptionalism. Or not exceptionalism, no, that, but sort that, of just yeah. that 
sort of specific attitude. American optimism. Optimism, yeah, that's the that's word. It. I got an email, or I think SAU students got an email of a new class, a new theology class that I think you're teaching. Oh, yes. Is it the uh, po- political extremism? Well, yes, it's it's uh, religious extremism. Okay. And, but it, it crosses into politics a lot because in many cases where religions become weaponized, uh, yeah. there's often a political component that will play into that, or at least ramifications that quickly become political. Right. So I had... This this whole podcast when I had Tad on here I keep I keep bringing him up but he's he, a great guy <laughs> he he was interested and he was giving me a lot of insight about like what people were doing what people did outside of you know them teaching and he said that you were a part of like just protests of some kind or yes. just there was there was some sort of cause that you were behind if 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 you yeah. would want to share yeah so. Back in um, uh, quite a bit of different times. So in the late 90s, early noughts, I was very much involved in um, the, the movement to uh, divest from sweatshop labor and to um, economic human rights, really. And so with that, when I was living in Colorado, I was doing my master's in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, I was part of a movement to divest the University of Colorado from sweatshop clothes, which we eventually succeeded at doing. Um, but it took a lot of hard work and a lot of demonstrating. And uh, and within that, I led teach-ins and things like that with my love for teaching. But I also worked as a street medic. And so back during the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, needed, um, needed EMTs aren't allowed to go into riotous situations. So he needed some core of, of medically trained people to go and help people who had been uh, injured in riotous situations. And so uh, I ended up joining Action Medical. Um, the person that King approached uh, was my mentor, Doc Rosen. He passed away a few years ago, rest his soul. But um, we are trained in how to deal with blunt force trauma, uh, chemical wounds, gunshot wounds, uh, things like that. And so we were the idiots with gas masks who would run into the fray and pull people out. And I was a red zone medic. So I would be where people would be engaging in uh, civil disobedience, nonviolent direct action. Uh, so essentially breaking the law. Yeah. And so I was in the, the hot zones treating people. And one of the things that attracted me to Action Medical is that whether the injured person was a protester or a police officer, I'm there for them, right? I see, I, I work to see all people as my as my sisters and brothers and not that us, them dualism that's very easy to slip into, especially when people are firing plastic bullets at you. Yeah. But, uh, to, but to maintain that idea that, that these, these are all God's children and, and I'm here to serve all, the police have their own medics. So yeah. that there, I never had any interactions where I had to help with that. But um, being involved with that got me into a lot of interesting experiences and, uh, and some hairy ones as well. Um, and then uh, when I was a seminary student uh, in the early 2000s, uh, I was an organizer in the anti-war movement when Canada and the United States were looking at uh, invading Iraq. And um, I was in Canada, so I was um, part of that. And uh, we held massive demonstrations. One of, the, one of the proudest moments was when my mom and dad were visiting me at seminary. And I got to take my dad with me to a demonstration um, that, that my group organized. And there were some 70 
80,000 people on the streets of Toronto. Wow. It was minus 30 degrees. Oh, man. Right? So imagine oh, how big man. it would have been if it wasn't that cold. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it was so great to, uh, to, to walk alongside my dad during that demonstration. That was a really... Uh, so do you uh, see, like, from your experiences, do you see any of that now, you know, given that it's been sort of... Like, over the summer, it was very big, mm-hmm. you know, with George Floyd and everything. Do you see, you know your experiences then sort of vicariously now oh yes absolutely um you know there's nothing more beautiful than seeing people find their voice especially when that voice is being spoken on the benefit of others um and i saw a lot of that this summer i saw a lot of people uh, speaking out of the pain and anger uh, that they have um, of the injustice they've had to experience directly uh, or within their communities. And I also saw a lot of, of people finding their voice um, who, who aren't on the receiving end of, of racial bias. Um, and to see that's a beautiful thing. When, when I was um, actually uh, uh, involved in the divest from sweatshop uh, campaign at the University of Colorado, I remember an economics professor coming out and he was just giddy because he never foresaw what was going on going on. He said, I never thought the people who are benefiting from the sweatshops would be the ones out here uh, putting their necks out in, in, in favor of, of people whom they're never going to meet. Right. Right. And, and this is a different situation where this is happening in the States and, 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 People are working together. But at the same time, um, I saw in people that power that comes from standing up for your sisters and your brothers. And and um, and and people have commented on it extensively since last summer uh, in ways that um, it wasn't only uh, African-American Americans, but uh, white Americans, Asian Americans, uh, Americans of all sorts coming together. And, um, and it's, it's been exciting to watch. It, it, again, gives me hope. I mean, our nation was built off of protest. Right. And, and we should always be trying to find that more perfect union. And, and the beautiful thing and frustrating thing about that is we're never going to get there, are we? I mean, we're always going to be living within within human history right yeah but as long as we keep pushing ourselves it's going to get better it's going to get better and and when you look at how good things are now um so far to go but how good they are now compared to 50 years ago compared to 150 years ago compared to a thousand years ago right as as martin Luther king jr said you know the arc of history points towards justice it, like looking out there and seeing the curvature of the earth, it can be really hard to see, right? Yeah. But it's there. And and to find, um, especially people your generation, finding their voice within this and, and picking up the torch. And 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 to, to great effect. I mean, we can't take our foot off the gas, but I think we can take a lot of a lot of joy in the fact that again, there's that hope that's causing people to to go out in the streets, to causing people to do the various things that need to be done in yeah. order to enact social change. Yeah. Yeah. So Sorry. I guess sort of ask, ask, ask a priest <laughs> about something and see if they don't preach. <laughs> yeah. I, and it's sort of weird because I was sort of changing uh, gears here. But oh yeah. I guess listeners can tell by now that you have a very, you know, deep voice and a very, <laughs> you know, just 
one that people, I guess, would want to listen to. And I, and oh, with that, with you. with that being said, you've done voiceover work for uh, the theater department, and you've yes. done stuff up here. So if you just want to go into that, just about yeah. what you've done. So um, I was very, uh, very uh, graciously asked by uh, Professor uh, Raritan Hale to uh, be a part of uh, Romeo and Juliet this semester, which was a blast. So I auditioned, uh, which I don't think I'd done since college. My first year here, I was in uh, Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh, they had this this really fun gimmick for each performance where they would have a spotlight go on someone in the audience as if it was spontaneous right. right and i was asked ahead of time we're going to do something is it cool if we shine a spotlight on you and have you up on stage for the rest of the performance i was like yeah let's do it uh i had a really good time with that so um this year uh he asked me if i would be willing to be a part of it so i auditioned which was a blast and then um and then i'm i'm uh, i'm the prince and so i got to do that it, it it was a hoot. It was okay. a lot of fun. I'm really excited for it to come out and see the shadow yeah. puppets they've created and all that. And Have you ever thought of like doing voiceover work or anything like that? You know, I have. I have. Um, and it's it's one of the ways, main ways that I enjoy entertaining my son is I have all these um, all these alter egos and they all have different voices yeah. and stuff. And I, I, I've thought it'd be really fun to do voice acting or voiceover work. Or when I, when I was flying out to, to St. Ambrose, actually, back in, um, back in February of 2011 for my on-campus interview, uh, I was in Denver International and I was going through the airport security and this TSA agent uh, <laughs> turns to me and says, you know, you should really consider reading books. Yeah. And I I thought, huh, well actually I've I've authored one. <laughs> but yeah. but she saw my confusion and said, No, no, I mean like audiobooks. Like, oh okay, like yeah, I've yeah. read a few books, <laughs> but I'm going out for an academic job right now. Right. Uh but uh but yeah, I've I've thought that would be fun. Because yeah. I've I did radio speaking for speech team when I, I was in high school. I can believe you also have a really powerful voice. Yeah, thanks. And I mean yeah. The judges, they would give like note cards back of like them right. listening and they'd be like, can you narrate my voice or can you narrate my life, please? Like, can, oh. like, can, I love your voice. Can you, you know, right. narrate everything? So it's, it's very much like, huh, I've never really, you know, listened to my own voice. I've just right. thought it was just like something that was, you either have a, a good voice or you don't. Right. So it's, it's just, I guess, whatever. Even with, uh, like I had you for intro to the bible i yes, think for a summer right. school class and yep. it was like audio files for each slide on on the yep. powerpoint so it was very much easy to follow and just oh, everything good. like that so good. is that do you have that in mind you know for all your classes then to like record your voice and yes now that we're in covid right absolutely so for the for the accelerated online classes i i definitely you know that's that's a large component of it um but uh, yeah, doing the hybrid model—that's a large component of yeah. it as well. Once we're in a place, I'm hoping in the fall. Yeah, uh, I'm very much just looking forward to having a live voice all the time. Um, but I enjoy recording. Uh, it's it's fun. I never like record and go back and listen to myself. Yeah. Um, but 
it's weird because when I do it, I'm in my office. I notice that my hand gestures are still there. I'm <laughs> moving around in my seat. And I'm like in class, I get very excited, as my students can tell you. I get very animated. And sometimes I hop around the front of the classroom yeah. and stuff. Um, and I kind of do that in my chair as well <laughs> as yeah. I'm doing these recordings. All right. So speaking well, of that summer class, and yeah. you, you would respond to like some of our uh, prompts or whatever that we'd have. And yeah. it, it said, you said to, uh, I can't remember who it was, but you were in an indie band and <laughs> yes. you played the mandolin or something. Yeah, that's right. If you just want to go into that and just talk, like, how do you learn to play the mandolin? Like, right. out of all the instruments. Gosh. All right. So, I, uh, my, my main instruments back in high school and college were instruments. Or were sorry, uh, trombone and voice. Um, but by the time I got into college, I was starting to put the trombone away, uh, still singing, and I bought a guitar, and I was playing the guitar, and and I, you know, I learned I learned the uh, the people's key of G. I learned yeah. my G C and D yep. chords, yep. and 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 could do quite a bit with that. I think I learned to play. Um, uh, four non blondes. What's yep. going on to impress a girl? Yeah, uh, to impress a young woman. My freshman year. I think my brother did that too. Yeah, but it's just it's just a song you do, I guess. For, exactly. For Once you can get that B minor with the bar going uh-huh. down, you know uh-huh. you're, you're you're getting somewhere. Right. But um, but then uh, you know, I, I played it casually, but never really got into it. But in college, um, and and today, I'm a big fan of the Grateful Dead, mm-hmm. and the Grateful Dead quite often um, has mandolin incorporated into its music. And the mandolist who collaborated with the Grateful Dead a lot, is his name is David Grisman. And so uh, being a researchy sort, I started looking up David Grisman's solo stuff, the David Grisman Quintet, and all sorts of other things that he's done. And I just fell in love with mandolin. At that time, I was getting to bluegrass as well. Yeah. And the, the, the founder of bluegrass, Bill Monroe, was a mandolin player. So that's a key instrument for bluegrass. Um, so when I moved to Boulder, Colorado for grad school, I sold my guitars and I bought a cheap little mandolin and uh, started playing with it. And I just loved it. And um, and now I've been playing the mandolin. This fall, it will be 23 years I've been wow. playing mandolin now. <laughs> oh, my and, gosh. Yeah, I don't sound like it. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it's a lot of fun. So one of the things that I did when we went under a uh, lockdown last spring and everyone was suddenly we were all all the students had gone home from St. Ambrose. Suddenly we were all online and I was getting a lot of stuff from my students about how stressed they were. And, yeah. and especially for first years, God bless them. Right. It, it's such a shift. And in that first year, especially if you've gone away from home and then you come back and you're realizing, wow, it's different being back than it was always living there. Um, I want to do something for them. So I did a points of joy series where I think every week. I recorded myself a video playing a different mandolin song and then upload those onto my students' Blackboard sites for them. Um, And so I've I've been able to use it in that way as well. But uh, there's another professor on class who very sadly is is leaving St. Ambrose University. So our band is is now defunct. Yeah. But uh, we're both really into indie music as well, kind of shoegaze sort Mm -hmm. of stuff. And um, so we, we... made our own band and uh before that i was in a band where we did a lot of folk music Mm -hmm. that was a lot of fun with a bunch of faculty on campus and this was one of the professors that i was in that band with and so we did this offshoot band called nine times and we played a couple gigs with it which was really fun um but now i'm going to be looking to do other stuff and i want to go back and and do more of my roots of mandolin bluegrass and um and celtic music 
Uh, but I really want to keep up with the electric stuff too. Okay. Uh, mandolin lends itself in many different directions. Yeah. And, uh, you can do a lot of neat stuff. I mean, Led Zeppelin back in the seventies mm-hmm. were incorporating mandolin and yeah. stuff. But. And this is another point of research, uh, for researching guests, but is it yeah. true that you, uh, brew your own beer? <laughs> yes, that is true. Okay. Yeah. I started brewing beer in 2018, I believe. Yeah, the summer of 2018, I started brewing beer. A, a friend of mine who's a professor at Augustana is a beer brewer. And um, I've, uh, when I was in high school, I was an exchange student in Germany. Um, and and uh, from my host family there, I, I developed a love for good beer. And, and then that's always stayed with me. And then I... I I'm the sort of person who just likes trying whatever I can try. Yeah. And and so like recently I've gotten into woodworking. I I, I just like throwing myself at things. I, I think one of my one of my greatest strengths is my um my high tolerance for failure. Yeah. <laughs> that if I if I feel something I don't get bent out of shape and I just right. keep trying it. Um and, and then sometimes it gets better. But yeah, so I started brewing beer, and um, uh, the the first batch was was quite wretched, uh, but but I, I I drank it anyway because I was yeah. I was I was happy that I had it. My my wife was very gracious, and and she she did as well. But uh, but then I started gaining a better idea of what I was doing and gaining more into the science of it. You know, yeah. in theology, I don't get to work with chemistry or biology or these other things that come through when you're ranching yeast. Uh, and and so I've learned a lot about those things, not not the level that you folks are learning in your right. chemistry or biology classes, nothing close, but but at a very basic level. And um, and so then I, I got into kegging my beer, and, and now I'm revamping my entire system and I'm going electric. Uh, so I'm going to have an electric brewing system in my basement. We're okay. remodeling our basement, and the the laundry room is now turning into the brew room huh. with laundry facilities. Nice. And uh, yeah, so I'm I'm getting a bit more serious about <laughs> yeah. it. But so like, what is what does a process look like? How oh, do you man. go? Like, how do you start? Well, it all begins with the yeast. And so you've you've got to determine how much yeast you're going to need for the brew and what sort of yeast you're going to need. And then I start with uh, an Aeromeyer flask and a stir plate, and I make a yeast starter. So my yeast pack might come with um, 100 billion yeast cells, but my recipe might require 300 billion. So you get that on there, 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 put in some, um, basically you make a sugar water solution. Uh, uh, you make a pre-beer. Um, Sorry, I'm getting too far into detail. <laughs> what a brew day looks like is you've got grain. So I mill my own grain. I buy the uh, I, I buy the malt and I mill that to the consistency I want. And you add it with very hot water, which helps get sugars out of the malt because the yeast have to eat sugar. So you get the sugars out of the malt at one level. And then after you've steeped that in hot water for about an hour, um, you boil it. And that allows more breakdown process to make the sugars more digestible for the yeast. And after you boil it, you have to cool it down so you don't kill your yeast. So it has to go from boiling point about 212 degrees, which I did not remember from high school right. before I started brewing, uh, down to metric is so much better. <laughs> down to um, down to about um, anywhere between 75 to 65 degrees. And then you uh, pour your yeast in. At this point, everything has to be absolutely sterile. So there's a lot of nitpickiness with making sure that no foreign bacteria are in there. Right. Um, you pitch your yeast. Uh, you put it um, in. I, I built a fermenter out of a deep freeze. 
where I can control the temperature however I want to. And you put it in there and um, it starts bubbling uh, because that yeast, it starts mating and eating. And when um, yeast uh, eats the sugars in what's called the vert, uh, which is the, the pre-beer liquid you have, uh, it, it expels carbon dioxide and alcohol. And uh, you let that sit there, depending on the beer, anywhere from two weeks to several months. And uh, then you package it, carbonate it, and Bob's your uncle. Yeah. You've got beer. <laughs> <laughs> and if everything goes right, it tastes like beer. Yeah. And, uh, so I'm, I'm assuming there's a bunch of trial and error with this. Oh, yes. And, and even the successes are trial and error. So I take extensive notes as I do this uh, to see what worked and what did. My house beer is a vit beer, a wheat beer that my wife and I really like. And um, that one I've got down pat. I can do that with my eyes closed. Um, but now that I'm going to electric, and, oh, and then I do IPAs. I do, um, I on tap right now, I have a chocolate stout. Okay. Which I, I have to say, I'm, I'm very proud of. <laughs> There's going to be more chocolate stouts coming out of uh, my, my brewery, which I call the, the Jolly Vicar. Nice. Nice. Uh, the Jolly Vicker Brewery. Nice. Are, it, it just seems so interesting, I guess, to oh, just be, be like it's self-sustaining in a way. It feels <laughs> right. like it feels like it, but so is it different like each process for like an IPA, like a Belgian white or something or like a, a wheat beer, a malt beer, is it does there there different like processes there that go are. with it? You've got the basic rules, right? So um, you've got the basic set of rules that you're going to follow. But, but then, and this is where it gets fun, you, you tweak the little things. So like the types of yeast. Um, there's, there's a type of yeast, I, I'm going to slaughter the pronunciation, so I'm not even going to try. It's a Norwegian yeast. Okay. And so your ale yeasts, they ferment usually, give or take, around 75 degrees. Your lager yeasts, they usually ferment, give or take, around 55 degrees. This Norwegian yeast, you can produce a wide variety of beers at like 95 degrees. So you, on a hot summer, you can just put it out in your garage and mm-hmm. let it do its thing out there. Um, so the different types of yeast will create different esters and other byproducts that offer different flavors. Uh, big factor is what hops you're using. You've got all sorts of different types of hops with different strengths. Like if you're making an East Coast IPA, you're gonna have some sort of really juicy citrusy hops um, that, that have those natural properties. And you've got these scientists out there that are constantly creating new strains of hops and and, and biologists are creating new strains of yeast. Um, and, and that's where it kind of becomes jazzy, right? Because you can then experiment. There's a lot of software to help you with this as well, but you can kind of experiment. Okay, I'll, I wanna make an East Coast IPA. Um, what if I throw in this hops and then mix it with this hops and not only that, I'm sure there's no one still listening to the podcast at this point. (laughs) If you are, God bless you. But there's 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 um, uh, 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 flavoring hops and then aroma hops. So flavoring hops uh, are felt on the tongue that real strong bitter, but aroma is more what you breathe in as you're drinking the beer. So I have I have a Imperial IPA on tap right now that has an IBU of 126. Like your, um, your Bud Light's probably like what, six IBUs? This is like heavy. So it sounds like it's gonna put you in a coma, but most of that is aroma hops. And so you get that strong bitterness, but it's not gonna make your tongue curl up inside right, your mouth. Right, right. We could go on and on, I guess, about a, <laughs> I a ton of stuff. Out, but <laughs> it, it seems interesting, I guess, to me. Oh good, I'm glad. I, just, I like geeking out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but. 
Matthew Coomber, thank you for joining me on the podcast. I know we could talk for so much longer about just a bunch of stuff. He's just a very interesting character. I am your host, Ryan Sandness, and this has been the Who's Who of SAU. Thank you.